John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, so the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, what a joy and a delight it is to gather at this home retreat. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, first and foremost, as our refuge and our shelter, you are our home. But then you call us together as a body of Christ, the community, the household of God, you call us. And we enjoy not only fellowship with you, but now fellowship with one another. Uh, help us this day to rest in you, to worship you. God, I pray that you would open up the word. Um, as you open up the word, Spirit, that you would open up our hearts, that you would do surgery on us, uh, not only on our mind. Uh, we ask that you not just be the tutor of our mind, but the tutor of our hearts. Uh, I mean, the main, the main lesson that we get is, uh, is the good news of Jesus. So, Lord, uh, speak to us this morning. We definitely need your help. Uh, the power and the strength that only you provide. Pray these things in Christ. Now, every year, um, th th there's an impo important moment every year in every kid's life. Maybe some of you college students know this. Um, it's going to make or break the entire year. You know what that is? That 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 first that one day that's, that's so important. It's, it's the first day of school, isn't it? Because in the first day of school, you need to decide what outfit you're going to rock. Right? You need to know like how you're going to match these fresh kicks that you just got. And so you sit the day before, you pick out your outfit, and you get all nervous. You maybe stay up on you got butterflies in your stomach. More than butterflies, you got the whole ecosystem in your stomach because you're just nervous. What am I going to wear? Because you know that however you dress and however you present yourself, the outfit you choose to adorn yourself in, right? people are going to make a decision when they see you. Now, it's not just clothes for school, right? You can substitute this with anything. You ever been on a first date? What do you choose to wear? Or you go to a new job with new coworkers and you want to impress people, so you, you, you pick out a certain outfit. My, my point is this. The reason that we focus on these things is because we all know that first impressions are important. We all know intuitively, right, that whatever you put forth, that's what people are going to see and that's how they're going to understand you. We all know the pressure of putting your best foot forward. And that's why we want our, our, so to speak, our debuts to be great. 
They set the tone of what follows. And I bring this up because today's story of what Jesus is doing is sort of his debut, his entrance into his public ministry. So what he chooses to do in this miracle is how he's going to set the tone for the rest of his ministry. So I really want you to think about this. This is not just one of those rhetorical questions, but really think about this. If you were Jesus and you were starting your ministry, how would you begin it? If you were Jesus and you were starting your ministry, how would you, what miracle would you start with? <clears throat> or what parable would you teach? Or what Old Testament prophecy would you fulfill? Or, or let me ask you another question. Okay, let's, let's say you were Jesus' public relations manager. What advice would you give him? What strategy would you work out with him as he inaugurates his ministry? What wisdom is there? And I think it's a helpful exercise to really begin to think about why, what you would do and why you would do it, because I think it reveals a lot about what you think about Jesus. What's the most important thing that you're setting forth? What tone will you set? We look at today's passage about Jesus and, and Jesus' heavenly divine wisdom. He chooses to begin his ministry by turning water into wine at a wedding. He chooses to keep the celebration going. He chooses to keep the party alive. And that's so telling of who he is and what he came to do because what's at the heart of the gospel it's the delight and joy in the Lord. Did you know that? You know, I'm only a guest speaker, so I can say some bold statements, and, you know, if you don't like it, then, you know, tonight's my last night. <laughs> you ain't giving me a paycheck. All you give me is this. <laughs> um, let, let, let me say this thing. If it comes as a surprise to you, does something happen? God don't want me to say this part. <laughs> Hello? Yeah, yeah, no. Should I just keep going? Am I, I'm loud enough, right? Yeah, I'm loud. All right, all right. All right, listen. If it comes as a surprise to you that Jesus would begin his ministry... Yo, you can't look at <laughs> Uh, if it comes as a surprise to you that Jesus would start his ministry in this kind of way, if it comes as a surprise to you that Jesus chose to begin the ministry by turning water into wine, if you are offended by that, I would say I don't think you know what Jesus is about. If you go, why wouldn't he focus on a necessary miracle? Healing somebody, restoring sight, forgiving sin. Why doesn't he start that? Why does he spend all this time on a luxury miracle? If that's what you're thinking, I would suggest or ask you to think maybe you don't understand the heart of Christianity. If you don't read the story and you don't go, of course, of course, this is what he is doing then I think you may have a lot of assumptions about Jesus, but not a lot of intimacy with him. Right, here's why. There are people in your life who you think you know well. Maybe you met in college, maybe you met at church, you know them for a little bit, but then they do something that surprises you. They do something that surprises you, and you go, whoa, that's so unlike them. That's surprising. 
But the people who really know them, their friends, their family, go, what do you mean? That's them. That's who they are. You see, I think a lot of people who think they know Jesus look at this miracle and go, oh, this is surprising. But those who know him, his friends, they look at this and they say, of course. Of course he would keep a party going. Of course he would keep the celebration alive. Of course he would be so concerned with joy. So my goal at the end of this sermon, by the end of this sermon, is that you understand the heart of Jesus in such a way that the next time you come across this passage, the next time you hear this passage preached, you go, mm-hmm, yep, that's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. That sounds just like something he would do. So that's one of what I want to consider with you guys today, the theme of joy and exploring what that looks like. Joy as the heart of life with Christ. All right, so I'm going to do something a, a little bit different. I'm going to explain the text. I'm going to talk a little bit about the text, and then I'm going to give three applications. So not, not three points, but I'm going to explain it, and I'm going to close with three things. All right? So let's begin. Keep your Bible open with me. Look at verses 1 and 2. We're just going to kind of walk through this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. All right, so in order to understand the drama that's going to unfold in this story, we have to understand the nature of weddings at the time of Jesus. Now, today, weddings are a $300 billion global industry. They're a big deal, rightly so, because they're meant to celebrate these love commitments between two people, right? So on these big, momentous occasions, you invite your family and friends, people who've walked with you, people who have impacted you, you invite all these people. And in Jesus' time, the scale of weddings weren't smaller than they are today, but they were bigger. They were much bigger. So these grand feasts, they lasted up to eight weeks, some up to a whole week. Right? These people knew how to party. So when they had weddings, they invited the whole village, the whole town. And if you can believe it, there were no dry weddings at the time of Jesus' day. The festivities were in abundance. There was lots and lots of wine. And I'm not talking about communion cup portion size <laughs> wine. I'm not even talking glasses upon glasses, I'm talking bottles upon bottles, and as we'll soon see, gallons upon gallons. You wanted to be at one of these weddings. So the story quickly moves on to the drama. We read in verse 3, when the wine ran out. Now, what kind of problem would that be when the wine ran out? Because I think, you know, naturally, I think when the wine runs out, that means the party's over. That means you go home. That means people drink too much. That means you're going to wake up the next day with a headache, and you're going to regret everything you ever did in life. But at the time of the Bible... In this culture, the wine running out meant the wedding was on the verge of being a complete disaster. This would be absolutely offensive to the guests, right? This is a shame and honor culture. And so it would reflect poorly on the host. It would have been a major source of public embarrassment, particularly for the bridegroom's family, because it was his responsibility to provide the wine. Now... Some sources say the bridegroom's family could be sued if the party wasn't up to par. 
Think about that. You could be sued if your wedding wasn't up to par. Can you, can you imagine if that were the case today? If you could take legal action against somebody because their party was not lit. <laughs> Who would be bold enough to have a wedding? Right? A wedding prep is already stressful enough. But can you imagine? All right, so this problem happens. What does Mary do? She brings up the concern to Jesus. Look at verse 3 with me. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, why is Mary notifying Jesus? I kind of wonder that. Now, I like to have a little fun with it. You know, like, well, what is Mary thinking? Because this is Jesus' first miracle, so at least there's a recorded another miracle. I mean, maybe Mary is, like, reflecting back, and she remembers the time Jesus was you know, playing with his water at dinner table, and he uh, turned it into, like, orange soda. Uh, and they're like, what soda? And Jesus is like, you'll find out. Um, you know, like, like, what happened in Jesus' past, in the history, that Mary would see that, hear that there's no wine, and go straight to Jesus, right? We're not sure, but she obviously somehow knows, somehow believes that he has some kind of power, some kind of ability to remedy the situation. All right, so we get to Jesus, and Jesus' response is very interesting. Right? In verse 4, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we need to clarify the meaning of Jesus' words here. By the way, I'm just going to tell you now, I'm not going to do a price connection with my hour has not yet come. If you want to hear a great one, Pastor Donnie's sermon in 2015. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> he says... Right, Because when I read this word woman, I can't help but read it with a sharp and stern tone. Like in my mind when I read it, I go, woman? <laughs> what does this have to do with me, right? But, right, we've got to be careful because we're reading kind of our modern understanding into this word. Right, because for us it sounds rude, it sounds disrespectful. Um, but I don't think that's the meaning Jesus intended to convey. Because if you remember at the time, uh, later on when Jesus is going to be crucified, he's on the cross. He looks at his dear mother, and he, you know what does he say? He says, "Woman, here is your son." Right? And Jesus is a be rude and stern, saying, "Woman, here is your son." But that's not what he's saying. He says it lovingly. But we need to understand this. Why does he say "woman"? It's closer to the equivalent of saying something like "man." It's polite. It's respectful, but there's a sense of distance. Right? It's not as intimate as saying "mom." So why does Jesus respond this way? And the answer is because in this moment when he's confronted with this issue, Jesus is thinking about something else. He's thinking about more than just the wine. His thoughts are on what the wine is pointing to. You see, right at the end, in verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Meaning that this turning water into wine was always meant to be something else. And so Jesus is seeing the present situation, but his mind is actually thinking on something else. He knew that what he was going to do was symbolize something much more significant than addressing the immediate physical concerns that were presented before him. Okay, and so it's in this moment. The problem happens, the drama has happened, and Jesus now decides, he establishes what his ministry moving forward is going to be about. So this is where we all need to pay attention. Jesus is establishing this act. My ministry will be about providing an endless supply of joy for my people that gets sweeter and sweeter. <clears throat> that is the thesis statement of Jesus' 
ministry. He begins this way so that everything else he does is now colored by this first miracle of restoration of joy to his people in a way that it gets sweeter and sweeter the more and more you drink of it and the more and more you taste of it. So this is our theme today. Joy is at the heart of life with Christ. And so having established that, I'm going to talk about three realities. Right, some of you are mad, anxious. Is he going to do the three points? <laughs> All right, I got it for you. You're at home. All right, three points. Sorry, I'm bad. Uh, all right, we're going to look at the spiritual reality, the harsh reality, and then the new reality. All right, so first point, the spiritual reality. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of joy. Therefore, the real danger at this party is not just a lack of wine, but a lack of joy, a virgin lack of joy. So all throughout the Old Testament, wine is used constantly to describe the joy of God's people, the hope of God's people, the restoration promise of God's people. <coughs> the abundance of wine, the abundant provision of it is meant to show God's abundant joy in the last day. So let me just read you a couple passages, all right? So Joel chapter 3, verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And then he says, and in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine in abundance. Amos 9, 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall build the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Let me throw one more at you. Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So this whole wedding feast points us to the joy that Jesus has come to give his people. The mission of Jesus Christ is to usher in this new kind of joy, not only for us to know, but for us to taste and to experience. Jesus is 100% for your joy. Did you know that? Do you believe that? Is this a surprise to any one of you? You know, because I think for so many people, when we think about Jesus, he is reduced. All he is and all he's come to do and all he's thought is reduced to a list of ethical teachings. Isn't that how we think about Jesus? Right? Do you have a tendency to summarize him in that way in terms of rules and regulations? If you're anything like me, that's exactly how I perceive Jesus. How I grew up hearing about Jesus. So for me, maybe for some of you, this is why you walked away from the church. Because this was the Jesus that you were taught. This was the Jesus you were told to love and obey. If that's the case, what I'm saying may be a surprise to you, right? This wedding feast, again, it's a thesis statement of what he's come to do in his life, death, and resurrection. Right? Maybe, I mean, let me just ask you, really search your heart. Can any of you admit that there was a time... Right? When you, maybe some of you have a remnant of it still kind of around. When you, when you, when you think of Jesus, why do you associate him with cold adherence to the law and joyless obedience? <clears throat> you know, people think of Jesus sort of like, um, 
You guys know the Dementors, Harry Potter? I remember them? I got this great quote, Remus Lupin. This is how, this is how he describes the Dementors. Listen to this. Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Get too near a Dementor, and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You will be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life. And sadly, I think a lot of us have thought about Jesus and Christianity sort of like the Dementors. That they are there to suck joy out. That they are there to, to make you soulless, to rob you of every good and happy memory. You know, the, the thing is, maybe there have been people in your life, you know, sadly other Christians who have been those kind of Dementors, who sucked the joy out of Christianity. And in fact, actually, maybe some of you may have been the Dementor. Sucking the joy out of Jesus. So here's a question we need to reflect on. Is the presence of Jesus in your life there to restore joy to the fullest and to keep the party going? Or is he stealing that joy from your life and shutting down the party? When Jesus shows up in your life, does he awaken joy or does he squash it? You know, I think some of you, you don't yet know Jesus personally and savingly. You're hesitant to come to him for the first time. Maybe some of you grew up in the church, you went away, you're hesitant to come back because you've been force-fed a picture of Jesus as only this strict moral teacher and this sort of bad behavior police. Others of you think you know Jesus. You think you know him personally and savingly, but you are more acquaintances with him than you are friends. And so you're offended, you're taken aback that this miracle, man, is so luxurious, is so unnecessary. You know, if I can speak candidly, I think there are a lot of, I know a lot of people who have, you know, gone to church their whole lives, they're so familiar with Jesus, but they don't understand his heart. And I know that because they don't like this passage. Right? If, if, you know, there, there, maybe this is some of you. Like, if you got an option to rewrite, if, the, if, you know, the Bible people came up to you and said, hey, would you like to rewrite the story? You would change the story, wouldn't you? And you would rewrite it. So Jesus, he shows up at the wedding unannounced because he's not invited. Because, you know, he don't hang out with drinking people. You keep that out. All right, Jesus shows up. He sees everyone, you know, everyone having fun, everyone enjoying himself. And he's just getting more and more mad. Maybe you would have Jesus who gets a little offended at everyone having a little fun. And so what does he do? He doesn't do this miracle. He does the reverse miracle. People are drinking wine and he turns that into water. <laughs> <laughs> And he says, go home. Go have church tomorrow morning. <laughs> and some of you would rewrite the story in that kind of way. Because some of you actually think that this version of the story makes for a far better and more real representation of Jesus. But thank God that that's not who he is. Why does it matter? Why am I saying that it matters to set the context of all of Jesus' ministry in light of the joy he wants his people to have? Why am I saying that? It makes all the difference in the world. And one area is this. If Jesus comes and he establishes the very first thing he does as giving people joy, that means everything else he teaches, he commands, and he instructs is not, therefore, secondarily important. It's not unimportant. 
but it takes its meaning in the context of joy. So that when Jesus commands and he instructs and he expects obedience, he does this because he knows those things promote joy in your life, not that they are opposed to the joy in your life. Realizing that when Jesus commands a life of obedience and following him, it's not meant to shackle you and bind you, but it's actually meant to set you free to truly enjoy who he is. Imagine... You're going out to a vacation with your family, and you're going to some place, and you know some of your friends have gone before, so you ask them, you know, hey, what are the things you recommend we do? What are the things you recommend that we don't do? And you ask them, and, you know, the general consensus, you talk to, like, five families, and they all come back, and they say, you know, these things that all, like, the tourist uh, info tells you to go, like, don't go. That's not worth it. It's not worth your time. It looks appealing. It looks alluring, but it's actually awful. Right, so they all tell you, don't go here, right? For whatever reason, it's too expensive, it's not worth it, uh, it's you know, overcrowded, whatever. By, by your friend telling you, don't go to these certain places, would you feel like they are restricting you and they wanted you to have an awful vacation? Are they telling you, hey, no, don't go there, that's not worth it? Would you listen to that and say, man, I've really got to go there now. It really must be good. No, you would know. That if they are a loving and trusted friend, when they say don't go, they are actually working to maximize your joy. Don't waste your time there. Don't waste your money there. You want joy? Then don't go in this direction. You see, if we understand Jesus' first miracle is to set the tone of his ministry, that he wants joy for his people. Every command that he gives is not saying, I don't want you to have joy, but I want you to have joy in the fullest. And so obey, live in this way, follow these teachings. This is why it's important to understand the water to wine miracle is the first sign. It sets the tone of everything else he's going to do. All right, here's the second point. There's a harsh reality. So the water to wine miracle is a sign revealing Jesus, not just as a powerful wonder worker. He could use that. He could have raised somebody from the dead. He could have done a bunch of other things. But this particular sign is meant to reveal him as a true joy giver. Now, do you see how the wine that Jesus makes is contrasted with the wine that was previously served? So you got the wine of Jesus, and you got the wine that's just kind of already there, the earthly wine, right? You got the joy of Jesus compared to the joy of this world. And what you see is the harsh reality that the wine that the world offers, two things. One, it always runs out. And two, it serves the best first, and then it's got nothing else for you. Right, the first thing, right? Verse three, right? The wine of this world runs out. It doesn't last forever. What does this mean? It means no wine or no joy that's offered to you from the world will last you beyond this life, and oftentimes it won't even last you the length of this life. The world promises us joy, and if we're honest, that joy, it really is good. All right, let's not be naive. Right? Sometimes Christians are accused of being naive that the glass is almost empty, and Christianity says, oh, you need to see it as, as full. No, 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 let's call it, it is what it is, a spade is spade. Right? The joys of this world, they are good. <clears throat> I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> I mean, who here would 
say that those joys are not enjoyable, right? Of course they are. That's why we pursue them. So we, you know, all the different sensations and pleasures of taste and smell and touch and sight, right? All the, the, the creaturely comforts, they really do bring us joy. So the point is that it's not somehow trying to say they're not joyful. No, they're not. It's to understand how temporary they are, how fleeting they are. Like verse 3 says, they're one day they're going to run out. The party is always going to end. The, the festival is always going to end. Every, every romance is going to end. I think we all know this to be true. Deep down, innately, inside of us, we all know that the, that the treasure is the wine of this world is going to run out, which is why we cling so much to hold on to them, right? But some of you are like, why do you work so hard? You work hard so that you, know, you have the money so you can go out and, and enjoy life, right? You can experience all the immediate satisfactions and, and you want it now. And then others of you are different. Some of you are like, why do you save so hard? Why do you work so hard to save? Because you want that security of knowing the future. You can have these joys. You know, you can access these joys. And some of you are like, why do you live so uh, lavishly? You know, why do you party so hard? Right? Because you're not sure what the future entails. And so while you have the opportunity now, you want to get as much earthly joy as possible. Why do some of you fall in love so easily? Right? Because that person who's presenting themselves in that feeling of, of being loved, that romance, right? You're scared on the off chance that that train will never come back. So you latch on to every single guy and every single girl that presents itself. We all deeply know that the wine of this world, the joy of this world, will flee. Now, others of you have experienced that. You've experienced the fleeting nature of earthly joys and pleasures. And maybe that's why you wrestle with just with bitterness, or hurt. Maybe that's why you feel defeated because you've lived long enough or you've experienced enough where you were at the wedding when the wine ran out. Now you got into the bottom of the barrel. You know exactly that feeling of disappointment or frustration or betrayal. And it happens in a lot of ways. Losing a job, a failed romance, Rejection from a, from a college, a promotion, whatever it is, you've seen the line run out. That's the harsher reality that we need to face. But of course, the gospel comes along and it tells us right, that the wine Jesus provides, that he supplies in great abundance. Verse 6 tells us he turns six stone water jars holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's, that's more than enough. And it's really interesting because sometimes the Bible works in very precise numbers. There's 153 fish. And here it says, I don't know, 20 to 30 gallons each. What's the point? The point is the precise number doesn't matter. It's just a lot. The point is that life in Jesus, joy in Jesus, will never run out because Jesus himself can't dry up. It's the infinite source of joy. And so you can drink from the streams of his goodness every day into eternity without the fear that you will ever be in one. Right, so that's the first harsh reality. Here's the second one. Whatever wine you're enjoying now, it's the best the world can offer. It won't get better than this. It will only get worse because the world serves you the best because that's all it can give. Right? Isn't that the, isn't that the, the, the custom that the master of the feast assumed in verse nine? Let's or let's go back to it. Right. So so he calls the the bridegroom over. Says in verse ten, everyone serves a good wine first. Then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, which you have kept the good wine until now. And I think you guys understand, right? 
when you're sober, you drink the good stuff, and then when you're too drunk to tell, then you drink the poor wine. And if you if you don't drink, you don't understand it. Maybe you've been a Korean, you know, meat buffet, right? You know, if you know you, you know your stomach is only this big. What do you eat first? You eat the good meat first, and then with whatever space you got left, then you eat that other stuff. The best wine offered first in this world. But when Jesus comes, he operates in a different way, right? Because it seems like things are getting better with Jesus. The wine is getting sweeter. See, because whereas the world's joys will only get worse and worse, and the quality only poorer and poorer, and going further downhill, life of Jesus, knowing him, only gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. The thing is, here's why. The joy is offered in the world you're only being offered joy that is another created thing. There's a limitation. Here's what I mean. Look, you can only get joy in this world in varying quantities, not in varying qualities. Because if you are a created thing, a created being, seeking joy in another created thing, sooner or later you're going to get to that edge and realize that there's nothing more. That quantity-wise you're going to have more, but quality-wise it's all the same Thing, but in Christ, you get to enjoy your Creator. There are no bounds, there are no limits, but then the quality of joy is infinitely better as we explore the depths of the infinite one. Why is eternity eternal? Because it's going to take all of eternity to explore the riches and the depths of Christ. His majesty, his perfection, his beauty, his grace, love, all of it, infinite, can never be explored. Enough, and we will spend that eternity with Christ when we drink of the wine he offers. <clears throat> this is the joy Jesus wants us to have. This is the joy that stands at the heart of life with Christ. And the question is, do you have it? Have you tasted it? Which leads to the third point, the new reality. How did Jesus turn the water into the wine? How does Jesus offer the joy? Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Right here, John writes, Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now, of all things Jesus could have done, why does he choose the jars used for Jewish rites of purification? Because what he's saying is that the new wine that he brings, the new joy he brings, is going to supplant, is going to replace what was offered previously. You see, because the stone water jars, they're symbolic in the Old Testament uh, for, for these rituals that you would use. You would use water to wash yourself, to purify yourself. And it was only as you were clean, it was only as you were purified that you could then have a relationship with God, that you weren't you know, abandoned and shunned from his presence. Right? And so obviously our sin, you know, our sin is the greatest obstacle that keeps us from experiencing and enjoying fellowship and relationship with God. Not only, and it works both ways, so first, your sin makes you dirty. So that when the Lord looks at you, he has to look away. He's so holy, he can't see that. But it's not only that God is disappointed with you, you know what your sin does? Your sin shrinks your own desire, twists your own desire so that you don't even want him. 
And so when Jesus comes and he turns water into wine, he's providing this new way. He's saying, a new form has come. I'm going to take over that old form, that old covenant, and I'm going to supply a new kind of way for you to have a relationship with God. I'm going to supply a new kind of joy. So, so what exactly is going on? Right? Jesus is using this miracle, this sign, to show us the new way for us to not just have earthly joy, but eternal joy. He's going to replace the old covenant ways with the new covenant. He's going to replace the physical cleansing with spiritual cleansing. He's going to uh, replace the, the external purity with internal purity. And how's he going to do this? He's going to replace water with wine. Because, listen, the wine, it represents joy, but the wine also is a symbol for blood. And when Jesus changes Water into wine. He's saying, I'm going to replace the old. What is he replacing the old with? With something new. What's that new thing? His very own blood. There's going to be a better purity that he offers you. There's going to be a better cleansing that he offers you. A better promise that he offers you. You know how you know this? Because when Jesus is sitting with his disciples in the last supper, he takes wine. And what does he say about this wine? Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What is he saying? He's saying, we're done with the water washing you clean. My blood will wash you clean. His blood will do the work that the water jars once did. Now listen, how many water jars are there? Six of them. So when Jesus comes along, he comes as the seventh. He comes as the full water jar. He comes as the complete water jar. He comes as the one who's finally going to make you clean. And through what he does, he's going to bring new joy and make new life possible. He's going to change your spiritual appetite, the taste buds of your heart. And what he's saying is this. I'm going to take the agony of Calvary's cross so that you can get the joy of Cana's wedding. We can experience the joy of knowing and being known by Jesus Christ because he's washed us, he's purified us, he's given us that new taste and desire for him. you got to see, when Jesus dies for you, when we say the blood of Christ washes us clean, how much? I mean, couldn't Jesus have just taken a little, you know, needle and needle prick worth of blood? He could have. That's not what he gives us. He doesn't give us a paper cup's worth of blood. But he gives, he gives us all of himself in full abundance. The blood of the Son of God is more precious, more costly, more expensive, more gracious than all the wine in the world. And now through Christ's shed blood, you don't have to have just you don't have just access to heaven, but to the host of heaven. And through, through Christ's blood now, the, the joys you have is not just the treasure in heaven, but the treasure of heaven. See, whatever earthen jar you're storing your joy in, it cannot give you the eternal joy Jesus wants to give you. Whatever Merlot you're sipping at cannot satisfy you like the majesty of the one who gave his life to you. The greatest joy does not come from Napa, but from Nazareth. <laughs> Greatest joy has not come from the old world, but from the world to come. It does not come from the new world, the new covenant in his 
And Jesus turns water into wine. When he replaces the old with the new, he is reversing that ancient curse that's been hanging over humanity since the dawn of time. And I'll close with this. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, they are experiencing joy, great joy. When the serpent comes, what does he do to distract them from the joy of walking with the Lord in unhindered fellowship? What tactic he helped work the fruit, nourish the joy. I don't know what that was. But he held forth an earthly joy, and he said, Take and eat. So that you actually read in Genesis 3, 6, that when Eve saw the fruit, it was good for food, and it was a delight to her eyes. She took and she ate. And in so doing, our, our first parents, our representatives, they condemned us to a life of short-lived, temporal, fleeting, earthly joys. They limited us to a life of changing samples and never eating the main course. But then God, in his great love and compassion toward us, he sent us another representative, a better Adam. And when Jesus Christ came and he shed his blood and he gave up his life for you, he now turns to his people and he promises. He says, listen, Satan, I know what you offer, but let me offer something else. Take and eat. Take and eat what? My body and my blood. Take and eat the bread and the wine. Take and eat and feast on true joy. Because what Satan was tempting when he was saying, take and eat was only earthly, but what Jesus is promising you is eternal. Why does Jesus do all this? Why did he die to get you joy? I don't know. But I'm glad I have it. You know, Jesus prays, he's so concerned about us. The night before his crucifixion, John 15, he says, he's praying this, right? He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I don't know why he's so concerned about my joy, but he is. Hebrews 12, it says that we must look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus is concerned about your joy. And do you know what this means? I really will close on this. The gospel assures you that it's not only safe to have joy, well, it's a sacred thing to have joy. Now, really think about that. It's not just safe to have joy. It's not just okay for you to have joy. It's a sacred thing because, because joy is a gift of God. It is a divine gift, the gift that he lavishes on you. I hope you hear me loud and clear because the Christian life is not just coming along and saying, hey, it's okay for you to have joy. The Christian life is coming and saying, it's godly to have joy. It's good to have joy. It's glorifying to God for you to have joy. But the reality is in our guilt and our shame, sometimes because of our scars and the wounds and the baggage we carry, we feel like we don't deserve joy. We disbelieve that we're worthy to have joy. So when joy comes in, it feels like an alien. We feel like we got to get rid of it. I'm not allowed to have this. But Christ died to make it available to you. It is yours to have. It is yours to swim in. It's yours to drown in. Jesus comes and he does not he doesn't just give you permission to have joy in your life, much more than that. Jesus comes and he provides you that ultimate joy through his sacrificial death. But more than that, Jesus promotes this joy in your life by drawing yourself to him. But more than that, Jesus stands to promise to give you that joy. But on the final day, as you enter into heaven, he will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. Friends, because you know Jesus, may you know the great joy 
that he is promising you may come as no shock and surprise that joy is at the heart of life with Christ. Pray with me.